Dodie, it's so great to hear from you and to see you and Elsie. The blessing of your ministry is um, something we hear about a lot, but we don't actually get to see it. So it's nice to actually put, remember what your face looks like. Well, this is uh, the fourth week now that we are working through these questions, and hopefully we'll finish them up today. Actually, next week we'll kind of have a, a one-off talk about um, in the book of James. We had several questions from the book of James, so we'll just put that all together next time and make a, a full-blown message out of it. But some of the other questions that came in, and for those of you who haven't been with us, maybe, or for a couple of weeks, uh, we opened it up and said if you have any questions about the Bible, the Christian life, or probably should have narrowed it to like, you know, the book of Genesis or something, <laughs> because, I mean, we got nine pages of questions, so here's week number four working through <laughs> these questions. So let's just dive right in. Here's question number one. Describing heaven, we've heard from other pastors that all believers have one angel assigned to us, also that there are several cities in heaven more than the capital described in the Bible, and that we will all have jobs in heaven. So here's kind of a three-for-one question. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 1 for the first one here. Hebrews chapter 1. The question of angels, do, basically do we have guardian angels is I think question number one here. And Hollywood has sort of messed us up with regard to this. Especially, you know, it's a wonderful life. You think of that when you think of a guardian angel. Well, that has messed up more people per square inch regarding the theology of angels because uh, I remember my grandmother at one time used to, she said that, you know, when we die, we'll become angels. And at the time, I didn't know any better, and then I actually read the Bible, and uh, what do you know? It's different. The angels are not dead people. Angels are angels. They're a completely separate created order, separate beings. And uh, as far as the issue of guardian angels, um, also in the book of Hebrews, we won't look at it, but Hebrews 13.2 says that some have entertained angels without knowing it. The thought is that, like in the book of Genesis, angels sometimes appear in human form, and they have a purpose when they do that, and we're told what that purpose is here in Hebrews chapter 1. Look, look down at verse 14, last verse in the chapter. The author says, are not they all, speaking of angels, are not they all, Ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. So angels are sent to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. So um, we do have angels that look out for us. They serve us in some manner. We aren't told specifically how. Some people claim to have seen angels or to have experienced some supernatural experience with angels, maybe so, maybe no, but um, Hebrews 13 says that we usually entertain them unaware, so they try to keep, you know, incognito, which is the whole human disguise purpose, but uh, we're told here that they do look out for us, especially for Christians or for those who will inherit salvation. Now, whether or not we have a specific one, you know, like is, you know, Bob the angel, my angel that's, you know, that I'm going to see and uh, as soon as I die. Uh, this we aren't told, that we have a specific angel. The closest we have it to anything like that is uh, when Jesus refers to children 
in uh, Matthew 18, he says that their angels always see the face of my Father in heaven. So again, I think that does support that those who will inherit salvation have angels looking out for them, but as far as specific angels for specific people, the Bible just doesn't tell us that. Uh, so maybe they change, and I tell you, some of us probably need changing angels. Angels need a break from some of us. So next part of this question, cities in heaven. And uh, there's a book by Randy Alcorn, you're probably aware of it, called Heaven, and it's helpful. I mean, the thing's like that thick. It's helpful, and I remember Dr. Toussaint saying this, and I'm so glad that he did, that one of the challenges of that book is that it tends to blur what it teaches or what the Bible teaches about the kingdom with the eternal state, that it sort of, you know, just blurs it into one big existence as opposed to making the distinction between what's going to be true of our lives in the thousand years that Jesus reigns on earth, which is sort of as close as we're ever going to get to heaven on earth. When Jesus prayed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he was telling us to pray for the kingdom for that thousand years when Jesus reigns. And that's the time, you know, when, when all the Old Testament is fulfilled regarding the promises of the Messiah. Uh, but that's different than the eternal state. And in the, the kingdom on earth, there will be multiple cities because it'll be this earth. In fact, you remember in one of the parables, Jesus rewards someone, says, take charge of ten cities. So there are multiple cities in the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. But in the eternal state, there's only one city described, and that's the New Jerusalem, our eternal home. So, it, and I think Dr. Toussaint also said that the kingdom is the front door to eternity. So there is some legitimacy sort of to blurring, but at the same time, I think it's very helpful to remember the distinction between those two things. And hopefully I've done that and not made it worse for you. And finally, uh, we're going to have jobs in heaven. Absolutely, we will. Uh, in uh, the kingdom, we're, we're told, take charge of ten cities, so we'll be ruling with Christ on the earth. But also in the eternal state, it's very simply stated at the end of the book of Revelation. It just simply says, his servants will serve him. That's it. What your job's going to be, don't know. But whatever it is, it's going to be a huge privilege to serve the Lord who came for us, died for us, and came back for us. So... All right, well, between every one of these, I just want to open it up for maybe any follow-up questions to what we are hurrying through. Is there anybody that's got a follow-up question? And our limber and nimble Daniel will rush to you with a microphone. Anybody? Okay. Well, in the, in the, the New Jerusalem, I believe if we, they talk about gates in the New Jerusalem. Where do the people go in and out of the gates and where, where they go to from the New Jerusalem? The New Jerusalem will have uh, 12 gates, each named after each apostle, and, and they're always open. They're, they don't close. Uh, but it's sort of unclear in uh, uh, whether the New Jerusalem, when it descends from heaven to the new earth, if it's sort of like a satellite city above it or if it actually comes down and becomes part of the earth. But uh, the in and out is basically for the into the earth and into the city, so that's that's the best that we can that I can see from that. So, Wayne, I uh, Wayne, I don't know, if, is this on? Hello, 
Wayne? It's on. Okay. How do I, how can we understand when it talks about, and the nations shall bring their glory and honor into it? And I was always under the impression, at least from a formal Bible teacher, that nations were never used to describe dead people. So these are apparently living nations at the time that appear to be either in the, I guess, is it, are we talking about the thousand-year reign that bring their glory and honor in? Do you know what verse you're referring to? Revelation 22, I believe. Okay, find, find the verse. Let's go to Dean, and, may, and then we'll come, come back to you if you don't mind. My question is, <clears throat> will time conti continue to be a dimension in heaven? Um, I don't know that, that the Bible says that there will be any sense of time like that. Eternity is pretty hard to wrap your arms around, um, especially when, you know, it never ends. So, and there will not be any day or night, so any sense of time as we know it is not going to be there. It's just sort of the eternal now, which uh, I'm glad we don't have now. I need every day to, re to restart and reboot, but great question, Dean. Okay, so Joseph, what, what's your verse? It's uh, Revelation 21, 24, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Okay. In, in the daytime, there will be no night. Its gates will never be closed. They'll bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean. I mean, best as I understand that, Joseph, it's just saying that the nations, uh, those people who hailed from nations, which we all did, every tribe, every tongue will be represented, and they will, they will bring their glory. I mean, it just refers to their presence. I can't think of... So, so, so I guess so we, are, we are the ones that are represented by the nations. We are those nations. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. that makes more sense. And we me. are part of all, you know, every tribe and tongue that will come and, and confess Jesus as Lord. So. Okay, great. Follow-up questions. All right, so we're moving on. Next one. Um, will, with the ever more prevalent condition of adult children estranged from their parents like the prodigal son parable, is this now aligning to those who are described in 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5? Basically, if I can paraphrase, I think what the question is asking is the, the estrangement that we see between children and their parents is this show that we are in the last time, the last days. 2 Timothy 3, if, flip to 2 Timothy 3, if you would, and look at that passage real quickly. 2 Timothy 3, And I'll just say that the Bible tells us that we are in the last days right now. We have always been in the last days since the time of Jesus. The, the Pentecost sermon Peter preaches tells us that we're in the last days. So the last days is the messianic age from the time of Christ's first coming to the time of his second coming. So we're in it now. But what Paul, uh, Paul's writing about here in 2 Timothy 3, he also wrote about a little bit in 1 Timothy 4, just this, in the, in the last days, difficult times will come, he says there in verse 1. And then he makes this list of things. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, and on and on the list goes. Um, this isn't just a reference to this age. 
Uh, in fact, you even mentioned in your question the prodigal son parable. That was Jesus' time. So that was there in Jesus' time as well. But it does seem to imply that things are going to get worse because he says uh, things will come. There is this future element of it getting worse and worse. So it was true in Paul's day. It was, it's true in our day. And it's only going to get worse and worse until ultimately Jesus comes. All right, let's move on. Um, here's another question. I thought the moment we became believers, we received the Holy Spirit. This doesn't seem to be the case in Acts chapter 8, verse 14. So let's look at Acts 8, 14. Do we get the Holy Spirit as soon as we believe in Jesus? Or is there sort of a, a junior varsity level? Acts chapter 8. As you're making your way there, let me sort of quiz you on something that Dr. Toussaint would always teach us regarding the book of Acts. How many times did Toussaint take us through the book of Acts? Like three or four times? This was his uh, wonderful passion. And one of the words he used, I'll never forget, he says the key word for the book of Acts is transition. Give Rich an extra donut. Transition. <laughs> Very helpful, very helpful. When you read the book of Acts, remember that it, it is not necessarily prescriptive of the church. It is descriptive of the church at that time. And what, what that means is that we don't get doctrine from what we see necessarily in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is describing what's going on during this time of transition. It's a transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, and it was a squeaky hinge. It was hard to make the, the transition between centuries and centuries of being under the law to now being under this dispensation of grace. It was a challenge for the early church. And so this, this, uh, there were some transitionary things that happened that aren't necessarily normative for now in the church age. And this, you point out, is a very good example. Uh, Acts chapter 8, look at verse 14. The context is the Samaritans, evidently because of Philip's preaching, have started to trust in Christ. The Samaritans. Verse 14, And now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. So this is unusual for us to read this, because like you say, we are always taught, and the Apostle Paul teaches in First and Second Corinthians, that upon believing in Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit living within us, and he will never depart. So what in the world is going on here? Again, this is a transitionary time, and evidently what was taking place here, they needed the, uh, the stamp of approval, as it were, on the Samaritan, these new Samaritan believers, because for Samaritans to have uh, the same sort of salvation that the Jews had just been blessed with, this would have been a big red flag for many Jews. And so for Peter and John to go there, and incidentally, why would this be sort of a, a special thing to send John? Remember what John said about the Samaritans during the ministry of Jesus? Lord, shall we call down fire on them? 
See, this is, this is the John before Jesus, you know, matured him a little bit. And now we have John going and actually laying his hands on them and blessing them. And at that moment, then the Holy Spirit comes upon these new believers. So this is a, this is a very unusual circumstance. It's not normative. You're exactly right that the Holy Spirit comes upon us when we believe. But in this transitionary time in the book of Acts, there were things happening that don't normally happen. Let's look at a, a couple of other um, examples. Flip over to chapter 11, verse 15, where the Gentiles, in a much broader sense, are now given the gospel, not just Samaritans, but now Romans. Imagine that. Cornelius hears the gospel from Peter. Peter is called on the carpet by the Jews, comes back up to Jerusalem and says, tell us what you're doing eating with these Gentiles. And chapter 11 reiterates all of chapter 10 once again, but there's one statement that Peter makes in verse 17, chapter 11, about the, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Peter says in verse 17, Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So the, the, the Holy Spirit was God's stamp of approval that indeed people had come to know Jesus Christ. So we see that a couple of times here in Acts. And one other place I'd ask you to flip is Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And if you're not turning there, would you turn there? Because I'd love for you to really see this. This is something that is often overlooked and not mentioned with regard to these gifts, these sign gifts, as they're called, of miracles that were there in the apostolic age. Hebrews chapter 2, look at verse 3. The author to the Hebrews says, How, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. So pause right there. The Lord, that's Jesus, brought the salvation, and then it was confirmed to us, the author says, by those who heard. Who were those who heard? The apostles. And then it was confirmed to us, meaning the next or the second generation. So there's three generations here, the Lord, the apostles, us who heard. Now look at verse 4. God also testifying with them, that's the apostles, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. The author of Hebrews speaks to the gifts that the apostles did in the past, that these were sign gifts given to the apostles to verify, to testify to the message. And so, again, what was going on in the book of Acts was a transitionary time. All these miracles, all these things that were happening are not normative for the church as they are today. All right, I wonder if there's any questions to follow up on that. Yes. Thank you. Oh, I have a bitch. Um, um, when they, in I, chapter 3 of Hebrews, verse 16, it says all, you know, having heard, rebelled. Indeed, you know, when he brought them out of Egypt, 
But didn't they at first maybe believe and then they rebelled and they were um, persecuted by God? Or how do you, because I know like Pentecostals, they don't, when they baptize, they don't baptize in the name of Jesus. They only do the, from what I heard from someone from, and they baptize um, in the Father and the Holy Spirit, I believe. Okay. One of them they take out, not sure. But anyway, that, that's what I was because it says they all came out, you know, of Egypt, and it says, and then they rebelled. So did they at first believe and rebelled and then got persecuted? Yeah, I'm trying to see if this is the same chapter. Um, I have the New King James. I yeah, somewhere in, uh, or maybe it's not in Hebrews, maybe it's in 1 Corinthians, where Paul says uh, all were baptized in Moses, but some you know, did not believe. And I think that's what we're dealing with here with regard to the Exodus. There were, everyone who left, uh, left, but not everyone were believers. And some of the unbelievers, called, often called rabble in the, uh, in the book of Exodus, uh, stirred up the believing Hebrews and, and, and uh, basically got the whole nation in trouble. But God always has a remnant with his people, and there's always those among his people who believe all throughout the, the ages. So, that is a great question. The answer is no, but if you want, if you want a nice, full answer, come next week, because that is, we had three questions on that very issue, and it, it, it deserves more than just two or three sentences. We're going to talk, that is the theme of next week in the book of James. So, it's okay. It's all right. Great question. I hate to, to punt it for next week, but we'll be talking about that very thing all next time. <laughs> Daniel, hand her the mic, because people on Zoom and, and on the podcast aren't going to get what she's saying. And when you were talking about... Um all the things that were listed that were going on back then that are now occurring and more so, it seems. But um, doesn't it seem to you as if now, like in Matthew chapter 24 and so forth, you know, Jesus explains a lot of nowadays, but it seems like it's more in all nations now at once. It's not just this nation and then, you know, we're, you know what I'm, I don't know how to explain that. What, yeah, what do I do think? know what you mean. I think part of why it may seem that the world is getting worse and worse, maybe because it is, but, but also because we have a communication network that gives us the whole world, and maybe also because the communication network that gives us the whole world focuses on the negative. There's also a whole lot of positive that's going on. In fact, I saw an article that actually, actually blew me away about people in Hollywood giving praise to Jesus publicly. Did anybody else see that article? Yeah, you didn't, but it was there. There was like these people on the downtown street of Hollywood, hundreds, maybe thousands of people, uh, they had, you know, praising the Lord Jesus Christ in California. So, fantastic. All right, let's, let's move on, because this one is a hot potato. This one is a hot potato, and the, the glare on the clock frightened me. We, we only have 15 minutes to talk about this one. Okay, put your seatbelt on. 
The Southern Baptist Convention, the largest Protestant group in the United States, overwhelmingly voted to uphold its executive committee's expulsion of two congregations with women pastors on June 14, 2023, during their annual convention. What is your take on the best Bible answer for women pastors? Wow, look at the time. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. <laughs> okay, well, let's flip together to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy 2. Obviously, this is a huge issue today. Books are written on this, and my brief little reply is not going to do it justice by anybody's standard, even my own. And that's frustrating, both for me and I'm sure for you who's asked this question. There are many viewpoints, but there's really two primary camps on this issue. And they use words that we have never really heard before, but we understand the, the sense of it. And the, the two words, the first camp, are called egalitarians. And the egalitarians, and these are all Christians who believe this. This is not like believers and unbelievers. So... This is the infighting among ourselves about this topic. But the egalitarians basically believe that being male or female in and of itself has no bearing on hierarchy or authority, either in the home or the church. On the other hand, complementarians believe that being male or female, uh, that men's and women's roles are different, both in the home and in the church regarding hierarchy or authority. And that's, I think, where most of the disagreement is. And even in the complementarian view, where roles do make a difference, there are a variety of opinions there, and everyone points to culture and to the Bible, different varying levels. And so it's not an easy question to answer uh, the past, on a couple of levels. One, because the passages that are in question in 1 Corinthians 14 and here in 1 Timothy 2 aren't the easiest to interpret, and we also are trying to interpret them in a culture that tells us you'd better not say anything bad about women, or at least interpret it in a sense that it's bad, uh, or that we're not all on some equal footing. So it is hard on two, two levels. In fact, uh, as I was leaving this morning, my wife is visiting her aunt and uncle this morning, and she said, I want you to know I'm praying for you for your hot potato question. And we basically said if we could have found a t-shirt that had a target on it, that would have been a great thing to wear. So anyway, um, 1 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 2. And again, the question is, what is your take on the best answer for women pastors? And it might be helpful as we look at, before we look at this passage to say that I do think that the Bible makes a distinction between the spiritual gift of a pastor teacher and the role, the office of pastor. Understand the spiritual gift of pastor teacher and the, the office or the role of pastor. Um, think about any other spiritual gift. You don't see that necessarily a division or a distinction between encouragement only for men or encouragement only for women. There doesn't seem to be a distinction between the spiritual gifts, that both men and women can have the spiritual gifts. But what the distinction does seem to be is the exercise of those gifts in that context. So Titus 2, for example, says that the older women are to teach the younger women. 
But here in 1 Timothy 2, look down at verse 11. 1 Timothy 2.11, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Well, that's clear, isn't it? If only it was so clear. This is a challenge, and the issue seems to be, as Paul says here, authority, verse 11 and 12. Uh, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. This is the hard part. It's, uh, it's the hard part. And verse 15 is also a very tough verse. Uh, which isn't part of the question, but what does it mean that women will be preserved? Or some translations say saved. You know, you've got to have children to be saved. Obviously, it doesn't mean that. The preservation, some point to culture and say that this is a reference to uh, Artemis. Of course, First Timothy, Paul wrote to First Timothy. Paul wrote to Timothy who was in Ephesus, and in Ephesus, Artemis was the, the primary goddess there. She was the woman or the goddess who, who helped women during childbirthing. And so for a woman to come out of a context of Artemis and to place her faith in Christ, now when she gives birth, she is supposed to trust only in Jesus and not in Artemis. So some say that this is what this means, that women will be saved through the process of giving birth when they, they stay faithful and hang on to Jesus as opposed to trusting in Artemis. Some say verse 15 is simply saying, in light of the fact that women are not allowed to teach in the church in the same authoritative manner that a man can, that her legitimacy or her uh, fulfillment comes through teaching in the home. Or, of course, also teaching younger women, Titus 2. So it's not easy to land here. And verse 15 is not really the issue that you've asked about, but it's there in the context. So. I needed to to mention it. But let me also quickly add, as Paul does, that not all men are qualified either. Look at chapter 3, the very next verse. It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be. And then there's all this list. So not every man qualifies. Just because you're a man doesn't mean you can be a pastor. It means you've got to also have all these other things, and if, this does, if, if you don't have these, then, then this uh, disqualifies you from uh, serving in this manner. Deacons, it goes on, and then uh, women, verse 11, perhaps either the wives of the, uh, the deacons or even deaconesses. And we do see an office of deaconess for Phoebe. Was it Phoebe? It wasn't Phoebe. What was her name from Sincrea? Uh, gosh, I don't remember. If any of you remember, it's at the end of Romans. What's in the Romans? Anyway, office of deaconess. What was her name? No. End of Romans. Is it Phoebe? Yes, good old Phoebe. She was from Sincrea, and she probably delivered the book of Romans to the Romans. And 
Paul uh, refers to her as a deaconess. So she had an official title, an official role there in the church of Synchria. So all that to say, um, the take on the best answer for women as pastors, Paul in 1 Timothy says that the reason that there is a limitation, that limitation is placed on women, is because of creation. First, verse 13, for it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. <laughs> A lot of people don't get that. <laughs> That's great, Marlis. Did you, did you have that go off right at the end on purpose? A lot of people don't get that, and honestly, it is, it is a challenge. It is a challenge, especially in our culture, to wrap our arms around it. Um, so, I do want to open it up for any follow-up questions, though. Lanny's got one right up here in the front here, Dan. So, okay, I have a grandchild that said, uh, ask me this question. Is it wrong for me to go to a church where the, uh, the, the preacher uh, of, uh, on Sunday morning is a female? Is it wrong to go to a church where a woman is preaching from the Word? Yeah, I mean, sh should you avoid those churches? That's what she she, she asked. Well, it's a legitimate question. Um, I mean, cl clearly the Bible shows that, and I say clearly, my understanding of this text, especially from verse 13, that Paul is appealing, this limitation is based on God's design. It's not based on the inferiority of women or the superiority of man. In fact, it's very much often opposite. Sometimes you will find women who are extremely gifted teaching, and yet the limitation that has, that, that has been placed on them, at least in the context of the local church, is that pretty much everything is open except this particular office. And so to answer, I mean, I would just leave it there. What does that imply to, the, to answer your question? If you have a woman who is preaching authoritatively from the Word of God, if this is saying that she shouldn't be doing it, what does that say about those who are participating in it? Now, I'll, I'll hold that with an open hand and say, you've got, to, you've got to be honest with yourself before the Lord. If you want to interpret it differently, just make sure you're doing it biblically and not simply because of the pull of the culture. And I'll tell you, the culture is pulling hard on this. It really is. It's, uh, it's not an easy issue. And this issue is not, uh, it's not saying at all that, that a woman is not to have authority over, man, over mankind, over man in any other context, like police officers, like in educational uh, institutions. Like I worked for a nonprofit for 12 years where my boss was a woman, and I submitted to her authority. And I, I believe that before God I should have. But in the context of the local church, Paul says it's different, and he points to creation as the reason that it's different. So, okay. 
Daniel, right here. Stay in the middle. It's too far for you to run on, on the side. Just stand up here by me, Daniel. Um, what about, um, could a woman, like, teach a Sunday school class where it's both men and women? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I'd say ask your pastor. <laughs> and I seriously mean that. What, what, do the, what do the elders and the pastor have to say to that? I'm going I'm to punt. Go ask Chuck. <laughs> All right. Shall we move on? Yes. I often hear preachers or other Christians say that when God allows trials into our lives, he does it for some unspecified good purpose. But then they never seem to suggest what that purpose is. I think that trials are part of God's process to make us holy. Am I correct in suggesting that God uses trials for sanctification, or am I oversimplifying things? No, I think you've simplified it very well. In fact, we won't turn there, but we're all familiar with Romans 8.28. What does Romans 8.28 say? God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, for those who are according to his purpose. But then verse 29 says what that purpose is, that we may be conformed to the image of Christ. So it's not that God causes all things to work out and you find a parking place at the mall. But God causes all things to work out so that we may become more like his son Jesus. So you're exactly right that the purpose of trials is our sanctification indeed. Okay, next question. Can you give me specific examples of the kinds of Christians in 1 Corinthians 3? So let's turn to 1 Corinthians 3. And this is a reference to, the question is, who are those who build on the foundation with wood, hay, stubble, and gold, silver, and precious stones? 1 Corinthians 3. The Apostle Paul is talking about what we often refer to as the judgment seat of Christ. In fact, Paul refers to it by that name in 2 Corinthians. But here in 1 Corinthians, he introduces or, or reminds them what he taught them when he lived there with them. 1 Corinthians 3, look at verse 6. Uh, verse six. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So stop there for just a second. He's contrasting himself and Apollos, two extremely gifted teachers, both who were there at Corinth, and he says that, I, I planted, I basically laid a foundation. Apollos watered that foundation, if I can mix the metaphors. But God's the one that causes the growth. Apollos has his job, I have my job, but ultimately God is the one that makes the difference. But then he says here in verse 8, each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. That we all have different roles to play in the body of Christ, and we all receive a reward, key word, for our own labor. And then he continues, and he gives an example of what this reward process is going to look like. Verse 10, according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid the foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So again, pause. 
What's Paul saying? He says, we have this foundation in our lives, that's Jesus Christ. So we come to Christ, or we begin the Christian life with Jesus Christ, and then it says we need to be careful how we build on top of that relationship with Jesus Christ. And he continues with that metaphor, verse 12. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So this is referring to the judgment seat of Christ, or that moment where we are before the Lord, where we are being judged for our uh, for rewards. Again, that's the context. I think we said this maybe a Sunday or two ago, but the, this judgment is not a judgment for sin. That was dealt with on the cross. We as Christians don't have anything to worry about when we come face to face with Jesus. This judgment is for rewards. Paul said that in verse 8. Each will receive his own reward according to his labor. And so the purpose of this testing Verse 13 is to test the quality of our work. So after we become Christians, we build on that with labors. Paul did this, Apollos did this. We all have different labors, and the quality of our work is what is tested. And he uses this metaphor of a house uh, and building materials. Gold, silver, precious stones, if you put fire to that, they stay. But wood, hay, straw, you put fire to that, it goes away. And so there's this element that when we live the Christian life, we are doing some things that are going to last, some things that are not going to last. And the purpose of that judgment is not that fire, this isn't hellfire, this is a metaphor. Fire is the thoroughness of fire to a house is compared to the thoroughness of Jesus' judgment of our, of our works. And then those things that we've not done on a quality level, and what do we mean by quality? Jump one chapter to the right in chapter 4, verse 5. We see what makes something quality. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. So once again, each person, we're told here, each man's praise will come to God. All of you who have placed your faith in Jesus Christ do have rewards coming, because we're told each person gets it. But what makes the, the judgment, the basis of the judgment, is the motive by which you do it. What's your motive? That's, that's the key. Okay, follow up to that. There's a hand right back there. Just wondering if the if the term for man all as it goes through man all through there is is a word that can be taken in either man or woman any individual. Um, my guess is that it is the generic term. I'd have to look at the original to tell you for sure. Uh, I but I'm pretty sure it's going to be generic anthropos, not onir, not not male, but mankind. But uh, I can look. I can look at that for you. Okay, any other question or follow-up on that? Mike, are you raising your hand? Okay, no? All right. And one other thing to mention here in verse 13, he uses a word here for test. 
that is a unique word. It's a, it's a word that means to test for approval. It's like when GM tests GM cars, they're looking to find what's strong about it. When GM tests Ford cars, they're looking to find out what's weak. This, this is the word looking to find something to approve. So the goal of that judgment is that Jesus is looking to reward you. That's the purpose of it. All right, well, we've gone over, and we're going to stop right here and pray. And then, Harry, you can come up and bless us afterwards. Father, as we've raced through these questions, we know that they only spur so many others. But if nothing else, hopefully we get some comfort in knowing that these big issues are addressed by you. And though the answers aren't always easy or even sometimes clear, we know there are answers, that you know the answer. So help us, Lord, to do our best with these questions, to let none of them keep us from acting, but that we would do our best to act with good motives, trusting you that even if we do something maybe that we're misinformed about, help us to do it well, that we would be, uh, give you glory and uh, give you honor. And also keep us in the word that we wouldn't use our own understanding when it comes to these things and certainly wouldn't use our culture as the basis of understanding God's word, but that we would come to the scriptures and allow the scriptures to say what they say and to mean what they mean and give us insight and courage to obey in a world that is going the opposite way. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. Hang on to your notes. We're going to ask the same questions again next time. (laughs) Same questions. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.